Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Astute Spy Talk followers may recognize this as the theme from The Russia House, the spy thriller starring Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer. It came out just months before the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, which supposedly ended the Cold War and ushered in a new era of peace with Russia. Well, that's just a melancholy memory now, with a savage war raging in Ukraine and what looks like the beginning of a new long cold war with Moscow, with all its trappings of espionage and intrigue. I'll be talking today with Tim Weiner, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of several books on the spy wars between the U.S. and Russia. But first, Gene has some new and disturbing details on the other cold war between the U.S. and China. Twice, Jeff, in the last couple of weeks, the Department of Justice has announced charges relating to what they call transnational repression conducted by Chinese agents here in the U.S. These cases expose attempts by the government of the People's Republic of China to suppress dissenting voices within the United States to demonstrate how the PRC seeks to stalk, intimidate, and silence those who oppose them. That was Matthew Olson, Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Later in the podcast, we're going to talk with Nick Eftimiades, a former senior intelligence officer, about China's tactics and techniques, including their use of U.S. law enforcement officers. Jeff? Now back to the U.S. and Russia. Tim Weiner, a former New York Times reporter and author of several books on the spy wars between the CIA and KGB, including Legacy of Ashes, the History of the CIA, Betrayal, the Story of Aldrich Ames, an American Spy, and The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare, 1945-2020. to He's at work on another book about the CIA, so I thought Tim Weiner was the perfect person to sound out about the notion that the Biden administration was pursuing regime change in Russia, sparked by the president's offhand remark that Vladimir Putin cannot, quote, remain in power. Tim Weiner, welcome to Spy Talk. Shouldn't we want to overthrow Vladimir Putin? Well, that falls into the category of the audacity of hope, Jeff. I mean, the United States uh, is not going to uh, nuke the Kremlin. The United States is not going to send 10 divisions uh, into Russia. The United States is not going to mount a covert operation of the type that the Russians mounted against us surrounding the 2016 election. That would be futile. Uh, No, as as the Buddha says, change must come from within. (laughs) And as you have noted in The Folly and the Glory and, and other books, we've tried. It's not for want of trying that we 
didn't overthrow the Soviet Union. It collapsed on its own, pretty much. I'm going to come back to that about the role of the CIA, what what it might have been in that, uh, and 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 uh, what it missed about that. But let's talk a little bit about. Let's give a short history of CIA attempts to overthrow the Soviet Union. As you say, it wasn't for want of trying, but these were dreams of glory that the CIA's leaders were kidding themselves with. Around the time that the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb in 1949, a young charter member of the CIA named Steve Tanner uh, was training up uh, Ukrainian exiles at a CIA base in Germany, training them to parachute behind the Iron Curtain and set up uh, resistance armies to fight Joe Stalin. This was repeated time and time again. A young CIA officer named William Sloan Coffin, later a famous pacifist in the Vietnam. And priest. And priest. Trained up uh, uh, Russian exiles, also in Germany, to parachute into uh, near St. Petersburg. There were three things wrong with these plans, which included paramilitary efforts in Albania and uh, other nations. One the CIA, the early CIA, was trying to do what the OSS had done during World War II, to parachute behind enemy lines and conduct uh, irregular warfare. That wouldn't work behind the Iron Curtain in a time of peace. The second was that almost every one of these operations was penetrated by the British intelligence representative in Washington, who happened to be a Soviet spy named Kim Philby. But even without Kim Philby's help, the Russians, the Soviets, were on top of these plots right away. They had penetrated emigre groups and so on. And so these guys just disappeared into a mall. And one of the most devilish tricks of the Soviets, the KGB, uh, was uh, to uh, turn... Uh, under pressure to turn these agents to send false messages back to the West, back to the uh, CIA and British intelligence, and tell them that everything's going swimmingly. Great. Send more agents. We're winning. Yes. Um, uh, Send money. Send gold. The most famous example of this happened in 1952, and this involved a young CIA officer named Ted Shackley, who later went on to fame and infamy. Uh, in the Vietnam era. Uh, So there was this notional Polish resistance group called with the attractive initials W-I-N, WIN. And uh, Shackley and his fellow CI officers, Shackley was a first tour officer, uh, started getting all these sort of communiques from within Poland saying, when is alive, we have 100,000 people, send us brave Polish exiles from London and Paris uh, and West Berlin, and we're going to topple the Soviet puppet regime in Warsaw. Well, they send gold, they sent guns, they sent $5 million worth of uh, gold, in fact, and and, uh, pallets of weapons. And then they began to wonder what was going on when Wynn inside Poland uh, asked for an American general to be parachuted uh, (laughs) behind the Iron Curtain. At uh, Christmas week of 1952, uh, the uh, 
uh, radios of Moscow and Berlin broadcast uh, the rather upsetting news that when had been a fiction, it was an illusion, it was it was a trap. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Paul, let's talk about Poland for just a second. So the CIA was somewhat successful uh, in bringing down, uh, well, the Soviet Empire and Russia, uh, Polish authorities in the 1980s with the help of the Catholic Church, with the help of the Pope. Um, now, you see, and this is an operation that might provide something of a blueprint as to what could be done to help, uh, if not unseat, unsettle Vladimir Putin. So, yes, Poland was under martial law in the early 80s. Uh, most of the leaders of Solidarity, the, the labor group uh, that resisted uh, communist rule, were imprisoned. And Solidarity didn't need guns. They needed paper and ink and fax machines, which were brand new then, and offset printing presses. And so piece by piece, with the help of uh, allies in the region, CIA began to smuggle these materials, the weapons of a free press, into Poland. This went well. So just simple materials to help the dissidents in Poland, paper, ink, printing presses, just to get their message out was very, very successful. We're not talking about guns here. We're not talking about sabotage. Yes, this went well. The smuggling routes got more robust. And in 84 and 85, CI smuggled in some really neat tech uh, to Solidarity to set up clandestine radio stations and remarkably, to be able to break into the seven o'clock news. So imagine it's 1985, it's a Polish winter, it's gray, it's cold, uh, uh, but Solidarity uh, is doing its thing. And its thing is, uh, so a gray man in a gray suit comes on uh, Polish television to read the latest news. You know, uh, tractor production has met the five-year quota and coal mining is is going great. And suddenly a banner appears across the television screen. It says Solidarity Lives and told viewers to tune in a certain frequency for the next uh, clandestine radio broadcast uh, from Solidarity. Now, so let's spin forward to the present time. We have the capability to do that with uh, state-controlled media in Moscow today, I assume. It could be done. So. The crucial thing here, Jeff, is how to get truthful information behind Putin's iron curtain. How to do that. Okay, so you've got, uh, if polls can be believed in Putin's Russia, you know, he's got three quarters of the populace behind him. You may have seen these various video clips of, People saying, yeah, the Ukrainians are Nazis. We ought to wipe them off the face of the earth. You know, uh, box pop, man in the street kind of interviews. Um, How do we get truthful information to the Russian people? Well, uh, most of the traditional channels have been blocked. Okay. But you could set, you could do an organized campaign to get Russian emigres to call their friends back home and say, you know what? You're being lied to. 
you could set up clandestine radio stations uh, in the absence of uh, uh, Radio Free Europe, which has, has been knocked off the air. Uh, you could uh, set up, uh, I understand that Elon Musk has got an airborne internet uh, mm-hmm. uh, plane flying over Ukraine. Yeah. Ultimately, Putin can only be removed from power through the will of the Russian people. And getting the truth to those people is the most powerful information operation the United States government could wage right now. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a long twilight struggle. It sounds like a return to the early 1950s where the CIA launched the mighty Wurlitzer, as it was called, of well, propaganda assaults on the Soviets. You know, Jeff, nostalgia for the Cold War gives me... I mean, the Cold War was not, you know, a golden era uh, for the United States or for the Soviet Union. I think the most important thing to remember is that the Soviet Union was an empire of lies. Okay? A billion little lies and a couple of big lies. Okay? Putin's Russia um, is also an empire of lies uh, with state control of broadcast media, with a clampdown on the internet, um, with a a media, a Russian media, which, by the way, uh, broadcasts his lies. His those lies are picked up uh, by Tucker Carlson and his friends on Fox Fox News and amplified. And the next day, Russian media amplifies Tucker Carlson's lies. Um, so you know, Putin has some allies here in the United States, uh, notably the former president. This is ultimately a battle for the truth. And if the truth will out, there's a way to tamp down and possibly defeat Putin's empire of lies. Mm-hmm. What about returning to strategies, early Cold War strategies? Again, the idea of igniting a new Cold War is, has so many problems. But um, fanning discontent with Moscow in Russian-dominated states in Central Asia, in particular, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and so on. What's the potential there? Jeff, I don't think a shooting war or an uprising of of militant, uh, kinetic uh, action, sabotage, uh, support for underground armies, is is the ticket here. Um, There are three branches of government in Russia, just like America, and they are Putin, the oligarchs, and the Suloviki. The Suloviki, that's hard to translate, the power brokers in the military and the intelligence services who wield great political and financial wealth. Okay, two of those sectors you can get to them. I think it goes without saying that every CIA uh, station within 500 miles of the Russian border is figuratively speaking, hanging out a help wanted sign right now. You may have seen that in uh, Stockholm, an immigration law firm put up a billboard 
at, at a tram stop near the, near the Russian embassy and say, hey, Czechists, you know, <laughs> tired of your job, feeling ashamed, come see us. We can help you get asylum. Coffee's on us. <laughs> and the FBI is doing something similar, targeting the Russian embassy in Washington, sending internet messages to employees of the Russian embassy saying, hey, you know, give us You're, a shout. You want a new job? <laughs> right. But the bottom line is it's a lot easier to overthrow a democratic government than it is uh, authoritarian dictatorships. The history of overthrow is not a happy one, Jeff. Um, such covert actions tend to come back and bite America in the ass. Uh, I think Iran is possibly the shining example. Right. So if you get rid of, if in the unlikely circumstance you the U.S. was to assist Russians in bringing down Putin, there's no guarantee that what follows him would be to our liking, to say the least. Yes, but, okay, first of all, I don't think personally that the United States is in the business of regime change when it comes to Russia. Uh, I do think it is in the business of making attractive job offers uh, to uh, uh, Russian diplomats, quote unquote, Russian spies posing as diplomats, and um, although financial incentives wouldn't work uh, in this case, uh, a U.S. passport uh, dangled in front of a Russian oligarch uh, uh, might do the trick. Now, CIA officers, as you know from your own interviews, uh, uh, have several techniques for recruiting. Uh, foreigners uh, to work for the United States. Uh, one of which, uh, of course, is, is a Halliburton suitcase stuffed with shrink-wrapped $100 bills. Um, uh, that is a time-honored technique. But in this case, like a lot of the Cold War uh, recruited and walk-in Russian uh, foreign agents, uh, there is an ideological incentive here, okay? Life in Putin's Russia will not be pleasant if this war does not uh, end in, in victory for the Kremlin. Uh, there's going to be a lot of recrimination. Uh, there's going to be a lot of house arrests and worse. Uh, heads are going to roll. Uh, and uh, that is a function, among other things, of the fact that Putin got really terrible intelligence in the run-up to this war. Um, uh, we note with interest, both of us, that uh, uh, the head of the foreign intelligence branch of uh, the FSB uh, has not been seen in public, nor his deputy for a while. They are reported to be under house arrest. That cannot be a pleasant thing. It was a shock. Um, well, you know, we don't uh, uh, arrest American intelligence officers for providing crap intelligence. Um, uh, but Putin can't. Um, and, uh, you know, not only did Putin get crap intelligence about the will of the Ukrainian people to fight, uh, or the, uh, inevitable swift advance of the glorious Russian army, uh, against the quote unquote Nazi regime in, uh, Ukraine, the United States 
and its intelligence services hit a bullseye in the run-up before the war, exposing the uh, plans that Putin had to create pretext for the war, um, you know, uh, staging a, a false flag attack, making a video of a non-existent Ukrainian atrocity with you know, corpses and actors playing mourners and, and much more. Uh, plans to create a fake predicate for the war. That blunted those plans. Uh, and a disbelieving world came to understand uh, that Putin was going to do this uh, by uh, uh, means uh, foul and fouler. I suspect um, that we may see a windfall in recruitments of disillusioned Russian officials, as well as I can imagine some of these FSB officers who are now wondering about their future, to say the least, might be dropping notes into the cars of U.S. diplomats, the ones that are left in Russia, and saying, get me out, and uh, I've got a lot to tell you. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished, Jeff, that um, uh, it will be a field day uh, for American intelligence, just as it was uh, in the days and weeks and months after the Berlin Wall came down. But to close the circle here, what do you, what would you, after studying the CIA and the Cold War for decades now, what do you say to people, hawks that are saying, let's go for regime change? You're living a dream, pal. That's what I'd say to them. Uh, there uh, is not a chance of a snowball in hell uh, that the United States could conduct what we like to think of as regime change. The only way to do this is a concerted whole of government effort to get the truth into Russia, to get the facts into the eyes and ears of the Russian people. Uh, to get them to stop believing the lies uh, that are coming out of Putin and the Kremlin and to get them to understand that the world is opposed to this. In the meantime, in the short term, are these sanctions, especially on the oligarchs, going to have any effect? I or in what effect will that be? Okay. I think what we're seeing, Jeff, is a return after a long absence of political warfare. Political warfare is all the means at a nation's disposal, short of war, to project its power and to blunt the projection of power by its enemies. And that includes espionage economic warfare, diplomacy, and covert operations. What we're seeing is, if not a whole of government effort yet, the resurrection of NATO, the decision taken by the United States and its allies to use not only economic sanctions, but information warfare against Russia and in support of Ukraine. Political warfare from the American side did not happen after 9-11, we were in a different kind of war. 
And so the Russians ate our lunch. Mm-hmm. We weren't really paying attention. Well, it does sound like uh, it's all too much like we're returning to Cold War footing of the kind that George Kennan and the Doolittle Commission envisioned in an early in the late 40s and early 1950s. What's the difference between then and now? Besides, we're not going to be parachuting agents into Russia. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that. Uh, the difference is that uh, in the Cold War, neither side understood what was going on in the other's country. We didn't know very much about the Soviet Union, and they didn't know very much about us. Okay. We now know a great deal about Putin's Russia, and they conversely know a great deal about us. And their knowledge allowed them to use political warfare in the events surrounding the 2016 presidential election to rub salt in our self-inflicted wounds and to pull off what is, in my estimation, one of the great political coups of all time. That was regime change of a fashion, Jeff. The aim of that campaign was to defeat Clinton, and once Trump emerged as a candidate, elect Trump. And we have been living with the consequences of that ever since. It was a blow against our democracy. We conversely know, we, I mean, the United States intelligence community and the American people, know a great deal about Putin's Russia. And so information operations, information warfare takes a great deal of precedence. As you mentioned, we had a lot of weapons during the Cold War. We had Radio Free Europe. We had Radio Liberty. We had the United States Information Service, which is now defunct. Okay. And so information operations, that is getting the truth out, has taken a backseat until now. We here in the United States are highly susceptible to disinformation, as we've seen. You know, tens of millions of Americans uh, believe that Trump is the president. Democrats are blood-sucking, Satan-worshipping pedophiles and believe that Vladimir Putin is a more attractive leader than Joe Biden. And the Russians aren't as susceptible to our disinformation efforts as we are. It is an asymmetrical war, but one in which the United States has a lot of advantages going for them. And, you know, we've just seen in the last uh, 48 hours before our conversation, Russian, the Russian foreign minister saying, well, uh, we demand an emergency session of, of, of the United Nations to discuss uh, the Ukrainians massacring their own people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russian talking heads on Kremlin state controlled TV are saying, oh, those corpses, that was a British intelligence operation. So the Russian people are even more susceptible to disinformation than we are. And the only way to win the war in which we're now engaged is by getting the facts and the truth out. We too are vulnerable. We too have a democracy threatened by autocracy. It's one big fight. Well, I'm personally looking forward to the day when Russian state TV's evening news broadcast is interrupted by uh, electronic interlopers and a man or woman appears <laughs> and starts telling the Russians the truth. That'll be fun to watch. Anyway, we have to leave it there. 
<laughs> Go ahead. Now bring you Rick from Bata. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to leave it there, Tim Weiner. So great that you were able to spare a few minutes uh, while I'm barking on a, yet another book to spend time with us on Spy Talk. Thank you. You bet, Jeff. Keep it up. That's Tim Weiner. He also hosts a podcast on global political warfare called Whirlwind, which has new episodes debuting next week. Like Spy Talk, it's available on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. So this was intriguing to me years ago. I went out to dinner with a childhood friend who told me about how he had smuggled printing equipment into Poland for use by Solidarity. I was not covering national security or intelligence at the time. I didn't really grasp what he was telling me. But when I heard this interview, I went, aha, aha. He was part of something much bigger and much more important than I realized at the time. Yeah, and I think the point that Jim makes is a good one, that we certainly shouldn't be parachuting agents into Russia. I mean, that was a colossal failure back in the early Cold War days. But just simple materials that can help spread real facts into Russia, make them available to the Russian people, is really key. And that may be just, you know, books and clandestine radio stations and uh, social media that gets around Russian censors. We really have to reach Russian minds and open them up to some realities of what's going on in Ukraine. And that's that's not terribly expensive either. And given current technology, you wouldn't think it would be all that hard to do. But anyway, that's up for the experts. Uh, a reminder to subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a great review, please. Also subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. And stay with us. We're going to talk about China and how it is tracking down critics and dissidents right here in the U.S. It is no secret that the Chinese government stifles dissent, but recent cases brought by the Justice Department allege that they're doing it not just within their own borders, but within ours. I spoke with Nick Eftimiades, a former senior intelligence officer who spent much of his career focused on China. I asked him to tell us about what the Chinese call Operation Fox Hunt. So Operation Fox Hunt is a PRC campaign to track down what it says are individuals who have uh, conducted corruption and money laundering in China. Uh, the reality is, is that it encompasses a whole swath more, including dissidents, religious figures, democracy advocates, um, advocates for freedom for Tibet, Uyghur, Hong Kong, what China uh, labels the five poisons. Six people have been charged recently by the Department of Justice. Do you believe, do you believe that there are other operations ongoing? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've seen other operations. We saw in 2021, I guess it was, events that had occurred over 2017 where nine people were charged in a superseding indictment under Operation Fox Hunt doing the same thing. Uh, overseas threatening dissidents, uh, trying to force them to return to China to face charges. Uh, we see this in the dissident community all the time. We see it in the Uyghur community. We see it in, um, you know, in pro-democracy advocates abroad, in student groups. Uh, China reaching out with espionage and to identify people that it perceives as a threat to the Chinese Communist Party. 
Why do they care? These people are in the United States. Um, because it's what they call a healthy state of paranoia within the CCP. Uh, the, China has a unwritten social contract with its citizenry. Don't threaten the rule of the peace CCP and we'll make you rich. And indeed, they brought over 400 million people out of abject poverty. So, so long as it's not threatening, and this is a, a, a product of, of communist systems that the threats are always perceived internally and always worked against internally. So China not only works against those threats to the CCP not only works against those threats to itself internally by dominating all media, dominating all information, you know, actively investigating and going after real and perceived threats. But now it has technology and the economic power to do that globally. And so it expands that in a borderless campaign. So this isn't just happening in the United States. It's happening in other countries as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People have been arrested in other countries for these types of activities, um, you know, even over the last decade and a half. We've seen these type of activities. Hundreds of cases of threats and repression have been logged by dissident organizations, Uyghur organizations, pro-democracy organizations. So China is very, very aggressive doing this around the globe, including to actually do rendition operations, kidnapping people in Vietnam, Thailand, and earlier in Hong Kong and covertly bringing them back to China. In one instance, one of these recent cases, they went after a man who'd been one of the leaders of the Tiananmen Square protests back in 1989. This man served in the US military. He is now a US citizen and he was currently running for Congress. Uh, this, this, this was quite an amazing case in my, in my opinion. Um, the extent to which they were willing to go to discredit this man. Um, yeah, there's a lot of question as to this, to this particular individual. And I'll even tell you, because I knew people who worked on his campaign who said, I quit because he actually was playing around with the CCP. He voted against, he stopped the uh, development of a, um, of a museum to commemorate uh, the Tiananmen incident in 1989. So with, if, if one speaks within the dissident community, they're very, very concerned about where his loyalties actually are and whether this was just a stunt to raise his profile into, um, into getting him elected. That's fascinating. There's a lot of suspicion. I, yeah, I don't know the story. Um, I, I do know what, what the FBI came out with was a allegedly you know, done to try and either injure him or implicate him with a prostitute or something like that. Those were all avenues they take. But when you talk to the, the people who know him and who have known him for years, they're far more questioning of the current scenario. So it, it's, it's a really rather in, intriguing case. Yes. <laughs> Another case uh, involved a man who started a pro-democracy organization in Queens, um, but he was using that as a cover, apparently, right. to collect information about activists and dissidents and human rights uh, activists. What do you know about that one? Right, which we, which, which is historical um, in Chinese behavior. The Scholars Students Association, any number of others, have been penetrated and exploited to 
collect information and to use as a means to control Chinese population overseas, uh, which is another thing about this transnational repression uh, that China uses social groups and trade groups and even organized crime groups to control, to penetrate and control the Chinese diaspora globally so that they don't present a threat to the CCP. Some of these cases seem almost trivial, though. Um, according to uh, the Justice Department, there were some agents who, who demolished the artwork of a, of a dissident artist, including a, a, something that portrayed President Xi, Xi Jinping as a coronavirus molecule. And they felt they had to destroy the art. I, I'm sorry, but it made me laugh. Yeah. As Americans, we see this, uh, we have seen Beijing complain about U.S. high schools for, you know, for artwork that they have on uh, on the Uyghurs. We've seen Beijing, you know, complained uh, U.S. businesses stop businesses operating in China. Uh, and again, it all comes back to this mandate of heaven idea that they have, which goes back to the Zhou dynasty that that the ruler, you know, will bring great things, but but um, any bad thing that happens is uh, you know is a is means the ruler shouldn't be ruling, and and they're petrified about that, so it causes them to try and snuff out any type of uh, any type of um, uh, you know, democratic movement or threat to this and what they perceive as a threat, a mention to the CCP, wherever it is, and this is actually one of the key challenges of China, of China's rise. You know, how will China deal with the world globally? that uh, you know, when people disagree with opinions, will it use all these enforcement mechanisms from the courts? And we see that now them, them taking things to civil courts uh, all the way through to illegal trade practices, shutting off trade, finding problems you know, with imports and stuff just to keep um, companies, the business infrastructure of the world obeying the CCP. There was uh, another case recently where they tried to pressure a businesswoman to re return to China, and this one involved money that they alleged that she had stolen. Um, her and her husband. And they, and, and, right, and they essentially held her pregnant daughter, who's a U.S. citizen, hostage in China for eight months. Yep. Um, you, you should hear the recordings I've heard of people being tortured. Uh, and you know, and China and Chinese police are calling up their relatives here in the U.S. and saying, "This is what's happening to your son," and uh, physically torturing the person. It's it's one of the hallmarks of their the, the China's behavior in these cases of transnational repression are espionage, cyber attacks, threats, physical assaults. So they will use physical assaults at home as a standard measure to pressure people overseas. In the case of this businesswoman, they allegedly had a co-conspirator in US law enforcement. Is that something you see often? Um, you know, I, I've actually been approached and do some consulting to US law enforcement um, at a local level, city uh, services, specifically because of this reason, and we have seen it. Um, we've seen it in a case in New York City. We've seen it in, um, in Los Angeles. We've seen it in a couple of places that um, 
China penetrates local law enforcement for assistance in whether it be on the ground surveillance or records checks, things like that. Uh, and and, and it, it's a tactic on United Front Works Department and it's an extreme concern to local police departments now, or at least city level police departments. How widespread is this? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I don't think anyone knows at this point. What we do know is that we take a look at Chinese cases such as Christine Fang, you know, Fang Fang, and her penetration of the political apparatus in San Francisco, even up to Congressman Swalwell. Uh, and we see a pervasive nature of China, um, sister city programs and, you know, coordinated programs for outreach at the city level. And we know a lot of those are used. We see a lot of cyber attacks against city and state level entities. So we know China is using that political apparatus at local levels and how they physically penetrated police departments and such. We don't know, which is why police departments are concerned. Do they appear to target Chinese American officers? Um, yeah, most of the time, yes. Uh, and, you know, for the same reasons, they have, they have financial incentives, they have coercion. So it, it puts... And, you know, China's national security laws say it doesn't matter. You're going to, you know, you're going to work on behalf of the PRC when called. So it, it's a difficult situation. They did it recently with Zoom. I mean, the FBI brought an indictment against Zoom's chief security, technical security officer, who was working with the Ministry of State Security and the Ministry of Public Security. And Zoom had committed to giving them the names and access to the accounts of over a million people living in the United States, as well as people living in Hong Kong. This is before it became public and the FBI approached Zoom and they shut it down. But uh, so there, there's reach and the desire to reach globally is, is certainly illustrated. It was interesting to me to see in a number of these recent cases that the Chinese uh, allegedly turned to private investigators quite often to track down names and addresses and more. Mm -hmm. Talk about that phenomenon, if you would. Well, I got to tell you, as a, as a former intelligence officer, it's not too unusual. Um, things like that happen globally. Are there no legal or ethical constraints on private investigators then? The um, ethical is question, but it depends on the country that you're working in. And in the United States, clearly, there's, a, you know, it depends what the person is doing. And in the most recent case where um, a, uh, a private eye was employed for this, uh, he had been searching online, as came up in the indictments, to see what his boundaries were. Is it legal or illegal to put a GPS device on a car in, in one case? Um, and this was the most recent case of tracking of uh, five, um, five indictments. So there, there are legal boundaries on them, certainly. Um, you know, were you working on behalf of the foreign government? Did you know that? Which is a, a, a big question here. In this case, uh, Department of Justice would contend that the individual did know that. Um, Matt Zubarias, I think. Um, Matthew Zubarias, I think was the name. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they contend in the indictment that he did know he was acting as an agent of a foreign government. So that's U.S. law, but it depends worldwide. How much fear has this campaign of the Chinese sown in the Chinese diaspora? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, we saw about a year ago uh, someone driving around Chinese neighborhoods in Los Angeles with a car that was mocked up to look like Ministry of Public Security, right? All in Chinese characters with the logos on it. And he was driving around Chinese neighborhoods when the Hong Kong democracy movement was, was going on about a year and a half ago. And China was moving against Hong Kong and he was driving around the neighborhoods, which uh, the person was eventually arrested and charged with impersonating a foreign uh, peace officer status. Uh, but you, you see to the extent that China will reach down into the diaspora and into the trade associations, into the you know, business associations that exist, into the social organizations that exist to try and exert. I mean, you know, this is a main function for the consulate in San Francisco is penetrating the Chinese community and ensuring that it toes the line of the PRC. So it, it does have a lot of a effect on the local population. In fact, every one of these cases that the FBI has brought were, 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 you know, were brought because people came forward. And that's a great thing. They had trust in the American system and they came forward and said, look, I'm being persecuted, you know, please help. So, Operation Fox Hunt obviously poses a threat to people within the Chinese American community, but does it throw, pose a threat to the United States? Well, it's look, if a nation has one single responsibility, it is to protect its citizenry. I mean, bottom line, if it has one single responsibility, that's it. So you, 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 you just can't have a situation where the, the government federal or state is incapable of doing that. And you have entire communities being threatened by a foreign government. So just as a fundamental tenet of American democracy, we have to be able to do that. Do other countries conduct similar operations around the world or is this uniquely Chinese? Well, you know, Russia certainly kills people around the world. <laughs> so they have, uh, they're, definitely aggressive in that regard. Uh, North Korea does a lot of this, particularly in Japan. There's a very large Korean population. Um, I, but no one, no one on the planet does this to the extent, the breadth and the, and the, you know, the reach that China does. I mean, far more than everyone else put together. So are there some key individuals involved in this effort? Well, there's some key organizations and that would be China's Ministry of State Security, which is their equivalent roughly to the CIA. Um, a lead on this is the Ministry of Public Security, because these are considered uh, many times enforcement issues. Uh, the People's Liberation Army plays a role as well. Uh, the United Front Works Department, particularly in the penetration of um, Chinese social, political, and um, business organizations abroad, and the um, uh, the Central Committee of the Central Commission on Discipline Inspection. They're probably a key player. This is the Chinese Party Organization, the CCP Party Organization, that is responsible for you know for for discipline within party ranks. So all the people who are accused of stealing money and running abroad. They're the ones at the center point of tracking them down. 
right? That's one component of this. You know, people accused of fraud, people accused of money laundering, and they work for what's called the Ministry of Supervision under the state council. They're the ones applying for red notices for, um, you know, with Interpol. They're the ones bringing court cases. They're the ones at the center point of actually tracking down people that they accuse of, of committing crimes. Um, the other organizations are involved in collecting intelligence, sometimes physically going out and grabbing people, uh, putting forth messages into the Chinese community. This is what's expected. You know, remember we have your family, not that blatant, but, but um, you know, all play a role on this on a global scale. This is a huge operation. It is. And America, most people are completely oblivious to it. It is a massive operation that goes globally. That was Nick Eftimiades. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council after a career as a senior intelligence officer whose work focused on China. Fascinating. I've been reporting on Chinese repression of dissidents for I don't know how long, decades. And in the early 2000s, I reported on Chinese agents harassing a Chinese dissident in the suburbs of Washington. It's it's a problem that can't seem to be solved by uh, U.S. authorities. I'm not sure if it's a lack of focus or a shortage of uh, manpower, personnel, but uh, the Chinese show no signs of relenting whatsoever. In fact, they may be even stepping up uh, their campaign against dissidents. I was particularly intrigued in your interview, Gene, about Nick's tale of Chinese agents uh, smearing a congressional candidate on Long Island. I thought, my God, that's, that's shades of Russian interference in the 2016 elections. But I don't know, we don't want to create a police state here, but something's got to be done about this open and brazen harassment of Chinese dissidents in the United States. Well, to me, the twist that he lent to that story was that that candidate for Congress might in fact have been sympathetic to the Chinese government and the whole operation might have been a ploy to power up his candidacy for the U.S. Congress. Wheels within wheels within wheels with Chinese espionage, that's for sure. Ever so. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Gene Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for sticking with us and see you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.